Let's now turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, and we'll read the first 22 verses. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play." Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon the whom, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then, that an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So far from this reading of Scripture. It's also read in our book of forms and prayers, Lord's Day 29. Do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, as and Paul used the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood? Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by these 
by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in remembrance of him or in his remembrance, and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, verses 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 10, uh, this chapter from which we've read, are actually cited four times in uh, the Catechism's confession with regard to the Lord's Supper. Uh, they are referenced in uh, question and answer 77. They are referenced in question and answer 78, 79, and 80. In verse 16, we have uh, questions. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And these are rhetorical questions. In other words, the answer is assumed. And the assumed answer is yes. Yes, indeed. The cup of blessing is the communion of the blood of Christ. And the bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. You see, the Corinthians were failing to appreciate that. And we'll consider how uh, that was taking place there uh, tonight. But the point for our immediate uh uh, attention and application is that we must not, we, we dare not fail uh, to appreciate the meaning of this communion in the true body and blood of Christ at the Supper of Remembrance. We dare not take this lightly or fail to appreciate the wonder of God's condescending grace that he so freely bestows upon us in our Lord Jesus as we partake of him at the table of remembrance. We share in Christ's true body and blood. That's language that's almost verbatim taken uh, from uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, question or answer 79. We, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood. And uh, we need to consider what that actually means. How? How do we do that? In a few weeks... Uh, Many of you might share a Thanksgiving dinner. Maybe you'll share a ham or a turkey together. And what that means is that you're all going to literally eat that turkey or that ham. You will physically, together, share in a meal. And the Lord's Supper is a kind of sharing together in a, a supper. But how does that work? Is it a literal eating and drinking of Jesus Christ? Physically, with the mouth, is that what's involved? Well, we share in Christ's true body and blood, but that does not involve a kind of literal eating and drinking of his body and blood with our mouths. And in that connection, we need to appreciate the fact that we share in Christ's true body and blood, but not by any change that takes place in the bread and wine uh, that we eat and drink. The Catechism refers to the elements of the Lord's Supper uh, a number of times in the Catechism, and it, and it actually describes them as holy in uh, answer 78. 
It speaks of uh, the holy bread of the Lord's Supper. In uh, answer 79, it speaks of uh, holy signs. And again, the signs refer to the elements that signify what is invisible. But the signs themselves are bread and wine, and they're described here in the Catechism as holy. In fact, in the form for the Lord's Supper that we hear every time we commemorate the Lord's death at his table, we we hear those words, uh, we receive the holy bread and drink in remembrance of him. Remember the actual definition of sacraments uh, way back in uh, Lord's Day 25. What are sacraments? Sacraments are visible and involves things that we see, holy signs. So there are signs, actual, literal, visible, physical elements involved in the sacraments. And interestingly, uh, they're called holy in uh, the language of our catechism. And we might well ask, well, why? Why why is that kind of language used? And we must say that that kind of language is not strictly absolutely necessary in our description of these elements. Um, It's not directly uh, taken from Scripture, but the word sacraments itself is not directly taken from Scripture. And uh, there certainly is a kind of an analogy uh, with the Old Testament sacrifices that were that were explicitly called holy. But what about this holy language? Uh, couldn't that lead to superstition? Is it superstitious to refer to the bread as holy? Is it Roman Catholic? Well, we must say, well, that depends, right? It depends on how it is understood or not, how we might fail to understand the teaching of Scripture. But we must understand from the outset that the elements are not of any uh, special quality, as if the bread has to be made in a certain way, as if it must be uh, a whole grain or processed grain or uh, rye bread or this kind of bread, and it must be uh, made in a particular manner. No, it's common bread, ordinary bread. I know there have been differences in the history of interpretation as to whether the bread that's used at the Lord's table ought to be leavened bread or not. And, uh, yeah, we can, we can read up on that if we're interested, but it's important for us to appreciate that the differences on this question have nothing to do with a commitment to the teaching of Scripture or not. Right? They have to do with matters of interpretation that have obviously been rather doubtful about among uh, those that uh, are equally committed to the inspiration of Scripture and want to, uh, understand what it teaches about this particular question. But in any case, whether 11 or not, that does not affect whatsoever the legitimacy of the use of either as it is done in an endeavor to follow the teaching of Scripture. The same thing must be said of of, of the wine. Now, we might say that wine must be used unless you're going to have a reaction to it. And then, of course, grape juice uh, should suffice. And uh, I think we might dare say that uh, it's appropriate that we use red wine because it more visibly indeed signifies the blood of Jesus Christ. But again, I don't think we should be absolute and dogmatic about such things. And uh, we ought not to 
think that it must be a certain kind of wine with a certain kind of label and with a certain amount of alcohol content. All debates over such things are uh, rather irrelevant to the real issue involved. Bread and wine, just like the water of baptism, ordinary water. It's not water from the Holy Land, if there is such a place anymore. Just ordinary water. These elements are not to be of any kind of special quality in order to serve for use at the Lord's Supper. And perhaps more importantly, in terms of the history of uh, debate and discussion about, about these things, the elements undergo no change. Question 78 asks, Do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? And of course the answer is no. Just as the water of baptism does not become uh, the real blood of Christ, nor does it actually wash away from sin. As if, well, yeah, it looks like water, but it's not really water anymore after something. But it's actually the, the blood of Christ. But that's, that's the teaching historically of the Roman Catholic Church with respect to the elements of bread and wine. That they actually become the body and blood of Christ. And these scholastic, uh, theologians will say, yes, well, it, it still looks like bread and wine and it kind of smells like bread and wine and it tastes like bread and wine. But those are just accidental properties. They're kind of external characteristics. But the real substance now is the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once the, the words of consecration are spoken, a change takes place. And interestingly, even among Roman Catholic scholars, there is debate about the nature of that change. Some will say, well, yes, the bread and wine actually are transubstantiated in the sense that they become the body and blood of Christ. Others will say, no, actually they're replaced by the true body and blood of Christ. In a way, the, the bread and wine is annihilated, but in its place, there is the actual body and blood of Christ. And then there's the Lutheran uh, understanding, or, or we would say misunderstanding, of the, the bodily presence uh, with the bread and wine of the Lord's uh, table. And they used the language of Christ bodily present in, with, and under uh, these elements. And again, if you can figure out the meaning of that language in a way that does not compromise the reality of the distinction between the true uh, physical body of Jesus in heaven as he shares our nature with a body that is limited in space, well, then uh, you understand a whole lot more than, than I could grasp with this language. But in any case, whether by transubstantiation or the, the Lutheran teaching of a kind of consubstantiation, that the substance of Jesus a body and blood is somehow with and in and and uh, under these elements. Both of these views involve the idea then that sharing in Christ is by a literal physical consumption with our mouths. In other words, there is a literal physical kind of eating of the body and blood of Christ. 
And here we must be clear with the teaching of Scripture that believers share in Christ, truly, indeed, by faith, through the working of the Holy Spirit, also at the Lord's table. It's by the mouth of faith, is the language of the uh, confession, that we receive Christ, indeed, the whole Christ, his true body and blood and the significance of the reality of his incarnation and his sacrifice for us. But it's a spiritual reception by faith. And those elements become the means that Christ has appointed to assist us and actually affect a growing union with the Savior and a real spiritual nourishment from him by use of the signs that he has appointed. And so it's not by a special quality of the bread and wine. The elements are only consecrated for specific use and for special use. And that's the only sense, brothers and sisters, in which uh, they are called holy. They are called holy as elements which are set aside and consecrated for a special, specific use which Christ has appointed. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? It's not just any old cup of wine that we might enjoy with a meal at home or in the evening. No, it's that cup which is blessed in the context of remembering the Lord's death. It's the bread which we break. It is the use of these ordinary signs for this special purpose. And in that sense, and in that alone, uh, they are holy. And again, here there is an analogy, isn't there, between the Old Testament sacrifices, which are called holy. Not because, although it's true that the sacrifices had to be without blemish, but it's not because they were uh, of, a, of a special quality or a special change took place uh, in them when they were used for the purpose of sacrifice or the consumption of the priests. In fact, the same might be said about the bread that was placed before the Holy of Holies. It's, it's, it's holy bread, but because it's consecrated for a special use, and you might even say it is holy while it is consecrated for that use. Remember David when he was hungry and he went to the tabernacle and uh, the priest provided him food. And what was it? It was the bread that had been taken from before the altar. It had been consecrated for that use but the day after, it was always replaced. And and uh, and David himself acknowledged that it is, in a manner, common. It's ordinary bread. And that's why after the Lord's Supper, we're not real fastidious about what's done with the remnants. Because it's holy, not because of its substance, but it's holy for the sacred purpose for which it's used while it is so used. And after that, there would be nothing profane about feeding it to the birds. Now, whether or not you feel comfortable with that, <laughs> the fact is that the the substance of this bread is not holy uh, in, in the sense that is of a special quality. It is holy only in that it is set apart and used for this holy purpose which Christ has appointed, whereby it becomes a means through which he himself communicates the truth and the substance of what? Of what these elements signify, what they point to. 
And that is Christ himself. The whole Christ. In the fullness of his being. Who is given to us. So that we share in the significance of union with him. In his true body and blood. And that leads us to consider secondly. That we share in Christ's true body and blood. Not by any change in the bread and wine, but by sharing in Christ our sacrifice. There may be good intention behind errors in the church. Certainly with those who submit their minds and uh, their aims to God's holy word, and they want to understand and, and practice the teaching of God's word, with every good intention because of our our fallibility and our limitations, we may be mistaken. And uh, we believe that Martin Luther was mistaken in his uh, understanding of the bodily presence of Christ uh, in and under and with the elements of the Lord's Supper. But his intentions were good. He wanted to follow the Scripture He was convinced that when Jesus says, this is my body, it must be taken literally, and any kind of objections come from the world of science and philosophy and find distinctions that are contrary to a simple faith that believes in the mystery. That the controversy at Marburg with, uh, with Zwingli, he, Martin Luther wrote on the table before him, this is my body. It's like he countered every argument by quoting this passage as if it, it, it settles the matter. And again, we can respect his uh, zeal, his commitment to the authority of Scripture, his desire to maintain the mystery and the wonder and the condescending grace of God revealed in the supper. Yes, all those things are true. And there is good reason. As our catechism says, there is good reason for calling baptism the washing away of sins and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, even though baptism itself isn't that. And there is good reason for calling the bread his body and calling the wine his blood. Right? That's what uh, Lord's Day or answer 79 says in answer to the question, why does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood? Or the new covenant in his blood. And Paul used the words of participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reasons for these words. There's good reason. And that reason has very deep roots in the scripture. Because there are many instances in which the sign of spiritual things is called the things themselves. Towards the end of question and answer 29, it gives numerous examples. Genesis 17, verses 10 through 11, where circumcision is called God's covenant. Well, circumcision is the sign of the covenant. In fact, in those same verses, it's called God's covenant, and it's called the sign of the covenant. Well, which is it? Well, it's the sign of the covenant. But God uses such language to show the close, intimate connection between the sign and the reality that is signified in God's covenant promises. The Passover lamb, the lamb uh, that was slain in every household whose blood was sprinkled on the doorpost and the lamb that was eaten is called the Passover. 
Well, it's not really literally the Passover. The Passover was God's activity of passing over those houses that were marked with the blood of the Lamb so that the inhabitants were not killed in judgment. But the reality of God's grace is revealed and communicated in this close connection between that lamb that was slain and partaking in that lamb and this wondrous grace of God by which He spared the Israelites from judgment. A catechism makes reference to the opening verses of this chapter where it speaks of spiritual food and spiritual drink that all the Israelites shared. Well, what was it? They all ate manna. They drank that water that came from the rock that Moses spoke to. And it's it's described as spiritual food and drink. Well, it actually nourished their bodies. It was necessary for their lives at that point. But it was more. It was intended to direct their faith to Christ. In fact, it's identified as Christ. Was the water really Christ? Was the manna really Christ? It's as if it's called that but to communicate the reality of what was signified by these things. It's called sacramental language. And that's how we understand Jesus' words, this is my body. Well, yes, it's figurative language. The bread signifies his body. But in using it in faith and in remembrance of him, it's a means by which Christ, through His Holy Spirit, communicates the substance and the reality to which it points. And that is the real body and blood of Christ sacrificed for us in which we have such a personal, real, intimate share that is likened to eating and drinking the food that nourishes our bodies. Christ Himself truly nourishes our souls as we eat and drink in remembrance of Him. There is this close connection between these things. By use of the signs, there is a real partaking of the things signified. And that's powerfully true uh, of eating and drinking. Whether feasts or the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and we'll see how Paul makes reference to that, or it's also true of pagan worship services, whereby participation in the feasts and eating and drinking food that was devoted to idols involves a kind of communion with demons. You see, the Corinthians, they they could have known that from the Old Testament. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. He's reminding them of things that they ought to know. That all Israel, they they partook of, of spiritual food and drink. They participated in God's gracious provision of literal food and drink for them, but a kind of provision that demonstrates and directs them to God's spiritual provision for their lives, their spiritual lives. What did they do? Even as a people who had enjoyed such privileges, they became idolaters. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink. What were they doing? They were celebrating a feast. And they were celebrating the feast in the context of this 
idol, this image that they had made. And that feast involved really what was a kind of part pagan participation in idolatry. It's like a communion feast. They could have known about that. Or look at verse 18. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? The priests who are allowed to literally eat of the sacrifices that had been boiled, had been offered in service to God? In other instances in which people literally ate of sacrificial foods, wasn't that an act of participation and sharing in the altar? And the assumed answer was, yes, indeed. By eating the sacrifices of the altar, they identified themselves with that sacrifice. They were represented by it. And they shared in its meaning as an oblation to God. It's as, as if by substitution, they themselves were emulated on the fire of the altar. And they received the benefits of that sacrifice of reconciliation with God. And the Corinthians should have known the spiritual dangers of idolatry that they faced all around them, right? They lived in a pagan world. And when they bought food that was sold at the marketplace, more than likely that food had previously been offered to idols. Now, does that mean they couldn't buy it and eat it? No, actually an idol is nothing. And uh, simply by eating such food, they're not necessarily sharing at all in uh, a pagan sacrifice. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and an idol is nothing, and it's real food, despite the superstition and idolatry of the pagans. And so in that sense, in that context, yes, they could they could eat with a good conscience. But in any case where eating and drinking was in the context that involved the participation in pagan worship or sacrifice, then there was this awful contradiction. There was this awful conflict between their participation in Christ and their participation in idolatry. A compromise with the devil really is the way Paul describes it. The things which this Gentile sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons. Oh, they might think it's Jupiter or Mars or Venus or Jove or Artemis or whoever. These are non-existent imaginary beings. But as they pursue their idolatry, they actually are worshiping Satan, the liar, who draws people away from God. And he says, and I don't not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Here again, hear that question. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Yes, you have fellowship with Christ. You partake of Him. Don't contradict that with any kind of idolatrous practices whereby you kind of identify with these pagan sacrifices that can do nothing but deceive and damn people. 
At the Lord's table, we partake truly of Christ crucified. Jesus said, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Try to imagine the wonder of that, that first Lord's Supper. We read about it. The disciples had just eaten the Passover, and that means that together they partook uh, in remembrance of God's great redeeming work uh, through the blood of that that Passover lamb that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here they are. And after supper, the Christ himself, who is now present with them, he took bread. He didn't take a piece of lamb, but he took bread and said, this, this is my body. He took the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed. The figure changed. No no longer will a lamb uh, ever need be slain. But rather through bread and wine, the Lord Jesus in effect is saying, be assured that you share in me. You share in all my sufferings. You share in my obedience. You share in my righteousness. It's all yours as definitely, to use the language of our catechism, as definitely as we receive these holy signs in his remembrance. We share in the true body and blood of Christ, not by some change of these elements, but by sharing in Christ our sacrifice. And we share in his true body and blood as one body together. It's another important emphasis of uh, of uh, the catechism, an important emphasis of Scripture. I mean, we hear it also in the opening words of 1 Corinthians 10. I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. There's that language of a common participation in these gifts of God. You know that a vast multitude of people might be uh, transfixed together by one singular focal point, one object of, of interest, right? It could be a great performance where all the eyes are upon one person, a musical performance, a, 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 a tremendous physical feat at a sporting activity, at a funeral. All attention focused upon one person and even creating a kind of atmosphere of unity, the unity of minds and emotions fixed upon an object of supreme interest and perhaps admiration. Isn't it wonderful to think that the most fascinating, the most admirable person in the universe is that supreme object of attention and love of millions of people throughout the world? For every Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important person. And as believers, we share in that conviction. We share in that focus to our faith. And this is the center, really. This is the central point of the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. It's not uh, common rules. It's not common ethnicity or common nationality or political uh, party or any such thing. 
at the center of the unity of the church of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. We, though many, and oh, what a diversity there was there in Corinth. We, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. In fact, it gets, it gets deeper than sharing a common point of interest and attention. The Lord Jesus Christ is not simply one of common interests, but he is one in whom we have common life, spiritual life, the same kind of life as those indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, as those together in union with him. You see, communion in, in the body and blood of Christ is, is not an individual thing. It is personal, yes. But even in our text, the whole language of of partaking and sharing there in verse 16 involves the idea of a common participation in Christ, a joint partaking in him together. By definition, that's what's involved. And yes, it comes to special expression at the Lord's table, where partaking of Christ indeed is partaking in a special way of a common life, a common unity, uh, a life of faith, a life that is shared by, by grace and love. And much attention in this chapter and in the next chapter is on that unity and the importance of guarding that unity and, and cherishing it. And there are a number of things that are involved in that. We can only list them say a few words about them. But this unity must be guarded and cherished by having a mutual care for one another. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And Paul holds himself forth as, as a model to follow. He says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. He's not a man-pleaser uh, for selfish purposes or simply to be in good with others, but his aim is to please them for their edification in a way that serves their good and their salvation. And that's something that ought to characterize our love for one another. It's interesting, isn't it? That the I think it's fair to say that the highest, most lofty description of church unity in Scripture is given in a letter to a church with the most problems. And the church in Corinth had problems, right? Doctrinal problems. They faced the, the dangers of denying the resurrection of Christ. They, they faced a division among themselves. They had divided into party spirits, identifying themselves with this leader or with that uh, leader. They, they faced the, the failure to discipline open sin among them. We could go on. There false, uh, false apostles among them. And uh, you know, the Apostle Paul is uh, very urgent in, in addressing these things. Even the second letter uh, ends with a kind of warning. He says, I fear that when I come, I shall uh, not find you such as I wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whispering, conceits, tumults. He was afraid that, that he would discover such divisions among them. 
But in a church with a lot of challenges and a lot of problems, yet you have these lofty descriptions of their spiritual unity in Christ. That means that such problems are no excuse to drop out, to give up. They're called to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Have a mutual care for one another. Be devoted to the expression of unity in worship and in sacraments. Remember how the treatment of the Lord's Supper begins. That Christ has commanded me and all believers to partake of this supper. That's not just an individual concern, is it? Actually, willful abstinence uh, from the worship uh, of God, willful abstinence or neglect of the sacraments is a sin against the body. In effect, it's a way of saying, well, my, my issues are more important than the command of Christ, or my issues are more important than the unity of the church. Be devoted to the expression of unity in worship and sacraments. And then finally, beware of compromising this unity by idolatry. That was the issue there in Corinth. Imagine going to church in the morning and attending a gay uh, pride parade in the afternoon. In a way, that might be a comparison of, of what was going on among some of them. Imagine participating in the sign of God's grace and presence with his people and his nourishment of them, and then carrying a sign that involves a perversion of God's signs, and it involves identifying yourself with a, a movement that is so diametrically opposed to God. What a contradiction, what a contrast. Now, that sounds extreme. There may be some that need to have that extreme contrast kind of spelled out to them, but there are other ways in which... Imagine going to a small group meeting and then uh, being eager to get out because you want to go to the bar and you want to get plastered with other friends that you have from work. Maybe that's a fair comparison as well. Fellowship with the Lord and His people... And then fellowship with the world. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? How many ways uh, may we contradict our identity and profession? What a contradiction between worshiping the Lord on Sunday and then uh, for six days of the week showing that you really belong with the world, that you love the world, that you share in its values, you share and its excesses you share and its mentality. These are more subtle ways, aren't they, than just partaking of, of food sacrificed to idols. But if we understand the principle, we, we realize that our union with Christ and with one another is such a thing to be guarded and protected. We are one body, and it is a holy body, united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we together should strive to be consecrated to our Lord Jesus Christ, and to assist one another in that for his glory. Amen.